Hello and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And we have just finished watching Taxi Driver from 1976. Before we get to that, how was your week? My week actually was very busy. My dearest friend had a birthday. That's me! And we went out and celebrated uh, with another one of our friends with a really, really wonderful dinner. Oh, we did go to dinner. Oh, well, actually, we had the night of her birthday, we got a dessert dinner, and then the night... A dessert uh, dinner. After her <laughs> That makes it sound like birthday, monsters. We had a dinner dinner. So, yes, it was a really busy fill, a week filled with stuff to do. Going out yes. and eating elsewhere. And then we... It, it, typically, on a person's birthday, you do all sorts of activities and things. We Not if it falls out. on a Wednesday and she's right. a grown-up. We spread this out over several days, and it culminated in going to the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum. If you think we're done celebrating my birthday, you are sorely mistaken. It's going sir. to go on until my birthday. That sounds right. Which will be another few weeks. So, yeah. Um, like a Persian yes. emperor in the Bronze Age. And we recommend going to the Rose. If you are in the Bay Area, California Bay Area, not the Puget Sound area or whatever other bays, there is a museum in San Jose that is, uh, has been compiled by and is kept by the Rosicrucians. I don't know what they are. I think they're like the Knights Templar. It's very confusing. But it's the largest Egyptian, or collection of Egyptian memorabilia. Yeah, artifacts is a better word. Um, in North America. Yes, those things probably should be in Egypt before you ask. But these, a lot of these have been sort of confiscated from private collections. There's mummies. There's kitten mummies and bird mummies and baboon mummies and, and fake mummies. gazelle mummies and people mummies. Right, but I was most impressed by the fake mummies. Also a fake mummies. Right. And that's a fake baboon mummy. There's a fake baboon. It's very cool. They thought it was real and then National Geographic came and did uh, an x-ray, and it is not real. It is made out of a jar and a wooden head. It looks real. It's very convincing. <laughs> but there's all sorts of Egyptian artifacts. I think, for me, the, the loveliest part was a recreation of a tomb that you get to walk into. Yes. And uh, you get a sense of how really... Th- I grew up watching, you know, Curse of the Mummy or something on television when I was a kid, and it struck me that all... Ancient tombs, for some reason, have torches that have been burning there for hundreds of years. Tombs are very dark. Yeah. Cause very, very dark. The dead don't need light. And how these were constructed, you know, in utter darkness. You're making, well, I amazing. mean, they, they had light during construction. Well, light during construction, but the way that it was... The way that they would flood the chamber with enough light to actually paint these hieroglyphics yeah. in the wall, it, it's really startling. Very impressive. It makes you think about the ingenuity of ancient people. and They're better than us. Yes. Like, the, we, I, it's, I don't know that... I, I read somewhere, and I don't know how true it remains, that we couldn't reconstruct the building of the pyramids with our current tools. Mm-hmm. Like, whatever they did is right. lost to antiquity. Also, we don't have slaves, right. so... Wax casting, Greek fire, building of things like Machu Picchu. Yes, those are all gone from us. We have no idea how it was done, and we can't recreate it, which is very strange, given that we have so many advances in technology. Right. 
I can put 200 numbers into my phone, but I nobody yep. knows how. You can't have a pyramid. Right? So maybe it's for the best. All right. Do so you want to get into the movie this week? Uh, yes. And we should warn people ahead of time that there will be lots of, there's a lot of profanity. There is much swearing in this, uh, many slurs every of many kind kinds. Of slur. Yes. <laughs> I don't know that anyone escapes. Yes, there is all kinds of seediness. This is a pre-Giuliani New York City, right. so much prostitution. Porn theaters are like a plot point. Right. There is extreme violence, as mm-hmm. you warned me last episode. Um, I would say, though, that if you watch a rated R movie in the 2000s, it's not that shocking, and and we'll get into right. why when we get to it, um, why I say that and then why you might differ. This movie came out apparently on a Sunday. Uh, it was released the 8th of February, 1976, which fell on a Sunday. So I don't understand how movies worked before now. <laughs> now there's something, the reason why I wanted to introduce this as a film on latecomers was because I have a very personal kind of relationship with this film, even though I did not see it. And that was the day in elementary school that we were all pulled into the library by very solemn and frightened teachers to, and were told that Ronald Reagan had been shot. Oh, okay. That was in 1982? Uh, let's see. The assassination attempt was in 1981. 81. Oh, and, so he was a fresh president. Right. We were pulled in. I remember it, it was a really kind of... I, I know that we always go on about how different things used to be. There was a game on local television here where there was a, 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 the probably one of the earliest CGI-type figures ever animated figures, who led you through a game where you as a kid, would they would call you on the phone, and you'd shout into the phone the word POW, and there was a like a shooter game that would shoot at these oh, sort of space invaders things. It was really early on. This is 1981. And this is like a dialing for dollars thing right, where they would the really call you. KTV, the same station that did dialing for dollars, you know, you'd submit your name, they would call you, and kids would answer the phone, and, you know, it was like space invaders. Something would be flying overhead, and you'd yell POW, and the, the I think the character's name was Barney. It's a little animated blob because it wasn't very sophisticated right. back then. And I'll never forget that day because the animated character called off all shooting games for the day and lectured the kids on some quote-unquote sicko who tried to shoot the president. Wow, interesting. It had an impact that, like, even as a kid you felt. Right. And especially when they took us into the library to speak to us about what happened, it was really weird because as a kid you sensed something was really wrong. Right. Because the adults were supposed to be responsible and taking care of you, and they all looked really And they all looked freaked out, right. Um, And that's because some of them had had a similar experience with watching Dr. King and Malcolm X. And And JFK. And Kennedys. Yeah. Going under, so they thought this was another wave of assassinations. It drew up things for them. So it was really kind of, uh, that was the attempt to assess was uh, John Hinckley Jr. Right. And his excuse was he was obsessing over Jodie Foster as a character in Taxi Driver. And the same way that Travis Bickle is trying to get Sybil Shepard's character. Betsy. Betsy's attention by doing something as drastic as killing a presidential candidate. This guy followed this as a kind of a... Is that what he's trying to do? It That's, was unclear to me. But he's making the attempt, and so he took this as a literal way of rescuing Jodie Foster. He'd been following her at that point. And she, oh, right. She, he was like a legit stalker oh, yes, of Jodie Foster in real life. That's right. And um, 
And for some reason, he just developed this obsession with her and thought that this was, I don't know if he felt this was ironic, that he was going to carry out what... I don't think that irony comes into play. Into, right. into I don't think that something as subtle as irony mm-hmm. comes into play in a person who is deluded to the point of thinking, I am obsessed with this actress and what I need to do to get her attention is shoot the president of the United States. I don't think... Irony enters and he, into he that. He warned her about it because he had been writing poems and slipping them under her door mm-hmm. at school, and this kind of had a huge impact was on. Was she in college at that point? Uh, yeah, yeah. She, yeah, she was a uh, uh, had entered Yale University. Okay, so she was a freshman. So she had, uh, yeah, and he was writing notes and slipping them under her door, telling her that he was going to kill the president, and then he made the attempt. So for years, this film, the title of this film, was stuck in my head. Because it was everywhere. Right. That this was the relationship between... Like, know, it's like um, the Charles Manson, Helter Skelter right. thing. Which the or Beatles are horrified by this. Catcher in the Rye gets right. attached to many of these same types right. of figures. So, yeah, it's, it, it was... Uh, so, for years I'd heard about the film as a kid growing up, but I thought it was some sort of horrible film that drove people to insanity or something. Um, as it turns out, that's not the case. It's just the record of a very, very disturbed individual. Right. Yeah. So you want to get into the plot? Yes. Oh, the uh, So Travis Bickle is a 26-year-old honorably discharged U.S. Marine. He is played by Robert De Niro. Yes. Who is fresh off of a Academy Award win for our last film, The Godfather mm-hmm. 2. Nope. Two films ago. It was two ago. Check out that episode. I knew his character name was Travis Bickle, but also did not think that his character name was actually Travis Bickle. Like, it's a name that I've heard culturally, Mm -hmm. and I always thought it was like a made-up, like like a nickname or Mm -hmm. something, because it seems like I've never heard that name, Bickle specifically. I've heard of Travis's, but Bickle was a name that I'd never heard before, and so I thought it was like a like a pseudonym or something that his character came up with. But nope, apparently not. That is his legit name. Yeah, and he has a terrible issue with insomnia. Yep. So his way of relieving this is by driving around through 42nd Street to having the porn theaters that are open all night. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't even seem like he has any kind of salacious connection to these porn theaters. He's just sitting there because they're open all night. Yeah. There's nothing else to do. And that is a different, like culturally, right. such a bizarre thing to me that you would go to a theater, order snacks, and then watch porn with other members of the public. Although I feel the same way about people who go to see the Fifty Shades of Grey movies in the theaters. Mm-hmm. Like these are movies that you watch at home in shame. <laughs> what is wrong with you people? Yeah, he goes, he orders uh, snacks. Right. The uh, There's a scene where he's trying to get the concession woman to tell him her name right. in that very, hey, I'm just trying to ask your name. I'm just, I'm just curious about what your name is, and she won't give him his name. That woman was De Niro's real-life girlfriend. Oh, really? Yep. It's <laughs> yeah, like that. <laughs> so he drives around porn theater, or he inhabits porn theaters, he keeps a journal, which he talks to himself in aphorisms. Although he, I didn't catch the aphorisms. Um, you're only as healthy as you feel. You're going, you know, he's constantly yeah, doing this. Yeah, but it this. feels cause, so. There's a voiceover from uh-huh. almost from Jump. Yeah, you in felt this. the the um, the voiceover damage or 
would make it or alienate it with modern audiences? Yeah, I feel like today uh-huh. the note would be, can we do this without voiceover? Right. I don't know that you could do it without voiceover because so much of his brokenness is translated in those passages. Uh-huh. But as soon as they started, I was like, he sounds like a fanatic and this sounds like a manifesto. And exactly. I was right. I mean, that's what it ends up very much being. Like, it, it, they felt like the writings of the Unabomber or something like right. that, where he was, like, talking about how the city was populated with scum and filth. And he had sort of religious intonations without actual religion. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I, so I wouldn't say that they were like, it was like anti-Christian or something like no, that. No, remember, keep in mind that both of the film, the writer and the director are both devoutly Catholic. I um, didn't know that about yeah. the writer. I knew that about the director. So they're part of that great tradition of Catholic, well, Catholic writers, writers who are Catholic. Graham Greene used to argue about that all the time, that do these sort of really hard-boiled morality plays. But in going on about the um, the voiceover narration, mm-hmm. the original director of the film was Brian De Palma. Right who loves all the sort of trappings of traditional movie making. And he might be the reason why Bernard Herrmann, because De Palma was fascinated with Alfred Hitchcock, mm-hmm. is composing. And uh, Herrmann, as we'll talk about later, composed most of Alfred Hitchcock's famous films. But the voiceover was also making connection to film noir. This kind of notion yes. of this sort of dark, horrible underside. This is a modern noir, the same way that... And there are later films like that. It's not a way that people, filmmakers nowadays, get into the character's head as much. Right. Well, I think because it got... Overused, maybe? Overused yeah. and then used poorly, schmaltzy. Mm-hmm. And it was it became, uh, I'm going to just tell and not show. Right. Whereas this, in this case, we're talking about a man who is so lonely and cut off, mm-hmm. as we'll see later in his attempted interactions with people that there wasn't really a way to show how twisted his thought process was because he wasn't sharing those thoughts with outside people so you need a voiceover at that point i think and you need it as extensively as it was here Mm -hmm. because if not there would just be lots of scenes of him doing random strange things right that don't amount to much until they suddenly do yeah but more instead it's you know, I'd say probably a solid hour of just him mm-hmm. driving around with no one, right. and then the voiceover. Well, he's having... It's like half the film. It's very much like some of Scorsese's other work, like Mean Streets, or Bringing Out the... Uh, no, Paul Schrader's film. Was it Paul Schrader who did Bringing Out the Dead? Anyhow, um, about ambulance drivers, which is, it's him relating to things around him. There's the kids who come out and throw eggs at his car, mm-hmm. or they're throwing trash at his car. There's the conversations he overhears the other cab drivers having. Right. But it's all about his inability to connect with anybody. Right. But um, going back to the film, so he's writing this journal, he's keeping it to himself, and then one day he sees a young woman who's a campaign volunteer. Yes. It's Betsy. Yes. Played by a stunningly beautiful Sybil Shepherd. She appeared like an angel out of this filthy mess. She is alone. They cannot touch her, which is a great line. And I, I think, guess. I mean, I guess that's an iconic thing you said. Mm-hmm. I have no... Well, the idea that... It didn't reach me culturally, because I... Well, I think also, again, it's kind of one of the, the, the issues with filmmaking, especially now, is it is very derivative. So the moments that really struck us have been repeated over and over yeah, again that might in a hundred different versions. She 
has some of my favorite scenes. Actually, my favorite scenes, I think, in this movie are the scenes between Sybil Shepherd and uh, Albert Brooks. But I think that just might be, you like I Albert love Brooks. Albert Brooks. I now, just do. But to go on about Albert Brooks, because we haven't mentioned what he's doing. So, Betsy, mm-hmm. she's a uh, campaign volunteer for uh, Senator Palantine. And she's there, and she, that's where Albert Brooks comes in. He's also a volunteer. Right. He might be supervising her. I'm not. Uh, it's clear. unclear. But he uh, certainly is completely infatuated with her. He is. Every third word out of his mouth is how he loves her. It's real harassed. Like, Civil Shepherd is sexually harassed from moment one in this scene right. or in this film by every man there is. Right. She is leered at. She is catcalled. Her coworkers are constantly hitting on her. She takes it very well and she sort of just dusts it off. And then Travis, he, she sees him watching her at one point, and then he gets chased off by Albert Brooks's character. Um, but then he comes back later, mm-hmm. dressed, you know, appropriately, and he says he wants to volunteer, but I'll only sign up with Sybil Shepherd. And then he proceeds to ask her out. This for is a scene. This is a scene where I asked you how you felt about how attractive Robert De Niro was, because I think there are times when I'm watching a movie where I'm going, "This attraction is solely here because it moves the plot along." My problem mm-hmm. with this and her agreeing to go out with him, we live in a different time now, right? right? But this woman, like I said, is beset upon by every person with a dick in a radius. <laughs> like, it's just like, ding, 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 and then people are harassing her, constantly asking her out, telling mm-hmm. her how beautiful she is, how they love her, this, that, and the other. I don't, first, I don't understand how she's single. I'm like, oh, she's definitely a lesbian, right? Like, not in the context of the film, obviously, but like, that's how she's not married. But I just didn't believe, I don't believe Uh that you can go in off the street and, and, and present yourself as having one set of motives, then completely show yourself to be lying about that set of motives and ask someone out and have them go, gee, okay. So, well, this is what I saw in that film, or in that part of the film. First of all, I think that she's being hit on constantly, and it was just, I felt, the novelty of his approach. That Maybe. Got that him might lunch. be it. Like, she, and, and he's, she wasn't, he's she was a good looking to a, guy. a lunch in broad daylight That's in a true. diner full of people, so it wasn't like she was putting herself it was, at risk. Yeah, it was coffee, I think, in terms her break. Of how she's not interact or she's not married. We don't know anything about her beyond the fact that we he don't. sees her. Well, other than so she, she can, will say yes to a date. Right. Because she will she say yes to a yes date. To that a doesn't date. mean she doesn't say yes to other dates. And it could simply be that she's just very focused because she seems to be a genuine believer in this political campaign. Also, she is she a, a volunteer or does she she's work? She's a volunteer. Um, and she could be a student. She could, We don't know anything about her except how Travis sees her. Yeah. Really. She's and so beautiful. Travis sees her as an angel, and that's literally how we see her. She is Sybil Shepherd, and she's beautiful. She's very funny. That is the thing right. that I did like about her character, was she's very witty. Uh-huh. She's very sharp. She shuts these dudes down. Why? Because she doesn't have a choice. Because it's coming at her from yeah, but all she sides. She does it in like the most polite She does, and I don't way. know how she does it. And I think What yeah. drugs was she taking to keep her calm? Because I would have snapped... 14 times by 10 a.m. But with Albert Brooks, for instance, uh, uh, Travis is telling her, I can sense you don't have a connection with that guy, but I sense that we have a connection. And her response is, well, he's funny. 
And so, obviously, she's entertaining him because, or she entertains the notion they of are that relationship because funny together, she's right. amused by it. But in Travis's case, it was, I suppose, the intensity and the novelty of his approach, instead of being intimidated or frightened by her, because Albert Brooks' character obviously is too intimidated to do anything other than try to flirt with her in, like, the most... Well, I think he's probably made his intentions known, and she has said straight right. out, no, but we're it's not, kind it's of not going to happen. That he, and so they right. just have this. this and banter. that is my least... Uh, sort of objectionable thing because I feel like they've worked together for a long time and I do think that that's probably what happened. Right. He said, do you want to go out with me? They either did or didn't go out. And so they both know where mm. they stand in that relationship. So that is the nature the, of their relationship is that now he and, is right. going to be overly fawning and she is going to shut right. him down and and at every turn. It's hard to say in any way that you sympathize with any of them. She is very beautiful though. And the way that she, that she again, is being presented to you through the cinematographer's eyes, through the director's eyes, is just that she is angelic. Right. So they go to coffee. Mm-hmm. And they have and this then, conversation. Uh, yes, they have a conversation, and then she agrees to go out with him to a movie. Now, what she does, there's a clue there as to why she's attracted to him. She refers to him as a walking com- contradiction. Yes. So she's intrigued by him. Because it reminds you, it reminds her of a character from a Chris Christopherson song, which really puts you in the frame of mind of when this was taking place. Right, right. Chris Christopherson. So then, at their dinner or at their date, Mm -hmm. uh, Travis (laughs) determines that going to a porn film is an appropriate date. I thought he might be fucking with her. Because she says, "Are we going to a a you know is this a is this a dirty film? Like that's not." Mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. And he's like, oh, no, I see couples in here all the time. How many times have you seen this film? And as soon as it gets graphic, mm-hmm. she, like a boss, gets up and leaves. She doesn't say shit to him. She's just like, excuse me, excuse me, while I climb over the <laughs> other people in this aisle. Ugh. <laughs> just, so uncomfortable. I don't, I don't even want to think about To get out <laughs> of this theater. It's one of those situations where I, I don't want to think about it too much. I don't want to think about why the floor is sticky. I don't and want to. And then it just becomes clear that he legitimately did not know that this is not an appropriate date place. He okay. just didn't know. Um, so now there's a little backstory there that might you might find interesting. And when you watched, like you've seen Boogie Nights, for instance, right? I have never seen okay, Boogie, Boogie Nights. Nights. Is a film about the attempt for the porn industry to go legitimate. Okay. So there was a time when people were actually going to films like Deep Throat. You know? Right. No, I know that those had actual. So there was an attempt to break cinematic. So that might have been why she bothered to step in the theater in the first place. Um, but it certainly was not what she was prepared for, and she just gets up and walks no, out. No, she just gets up and walks but out. But it shows me more of the fact that, he, again, you know, like you said, he's clueless. He has no idea. He didn't understand that this wasn't an appropriate right. Why don't, venue. You know, and then she says something, which comes And out. he says, he apologizes, like legitimately apologizes. He says, I'm sorry. Right, but her, I, it, what was her line if, you know, I'd felt more, if you just said come out and said you wanted to fuck me oh this is about this is about as attractive right. as if you just said let's fuck right which is interesting because again we've seen her angelic she's seen her and then this word comes out of her mouth and you're like oh so Everybody that was an swears. interesting moment where he wakes up a little bit now he does try to reconcile this with her right i think that that upset him yeah. her use of the profanity i think was 
upsetting to him. Right. Because that's not how angels talk. No. He attempts to reconcile with her. He attempts to get her attention. She doesn't want to talk to him. He sends her flowers. Flowers wind up back at his place. Right. Decorating the entire uh, apartment. Yeah, she just denies them. Mm-hmm. She she takes his call once. He apologizes. We only get his yeah. um, side, which um, the some of the trivia I was reading said that that scene where he calls her from the lobby of the Ed Sullivan Theater, because I don't think he has a phone. No, I don't think so. We haven't seen it. Yet. And tries to get her to go out with him again. Mm-hmm. He doesn't. He shoots down the hallway. Like, he doesn't show mm-hmm. Travis on the phone right. because it's too pathetic to sort of look at. And he is, like, legitimately, he sounds sorry. Right. And like he would like another chance. And she's just like, I, n- uh, And no. this is, again, where those instances where you can feel sorry for him because I don't think he under, he doesn't know. You no, know? he doesn't. He's obviously operating on this different metric inside of his head. Right. And this is where I was like, did he have parents? Yeah, we don't find that out until later. But even when he writes to them, it's very... There's a scene that recalls that cowboy where his writing is so infantile. His writing is very infantile, but he writes much better than... Mm. Um, oh, I've forgotten his character's name. The cowboy. The midnight cowboy. <laughs> the titular midnight cowboy. Um, he writes Joe much Buck. better because... Joe Buck, that's right. Um, because he is constantly writing right. in these journals. Yeah. So it's childlike but it's not stunted right so after this happens he uh travis shares his uh his feelings about not connecting and not belonging with wizard who's played by peter boyle peter boyle rocking a very weird haircut i mean cut (laughs) well the hair is fled from him and so he kind of on the top and then on the sides Mm -hmm. it is he's compensating on the sides and luxurious and dark and it is unsettling and so he's a he's a cab driver who holds court, I guess, in an all night diner. Yeah, it's along a, with yeah. other cabbies. He's a very interesting character because although the racial and sexual epithets never leave his mouth, he's also at the same time kind of an enlightened creature. He is. It's he very was. Weird. He, they will throw out the f word, the f gaysler, mm. and then at the same time be like. Oh, you should tell them to move to California because if they break up, then one, then they get alimony. Right. It's much and they're more like, pro- oh, good for them. That. But meanwhile, they're using the F word, and it's like, well, what? <laughs> yeah, it's very strange that they, they they're using another rep- epithet for black people that you never heard. Oh, of. I never heard it. And they're using it in front of the one of the black drivers who's there, who just seems to read his paper all the time, not connect like, the conversation. This is what it is. But he also is like the one intuitive guy who every time he sees uh, Travis Bickle calls him killer. That's right. Like he knows something. Or well, he I think something. it might have to do with the fact that he's, he's, com- he's wearing the, um, the military jacket. Right. Or it could film. be the fact that he's a little bit, you know. Off. But, um, but he still looks, I mean, and you start seeing him, like, he's got, like, longer hair at the mm-hmm. beginning, and then he cuts it a little bit. So, like, as he's getting more and more off the rails, his hair gets shorter and shorter. Right. Uh, but when he's got the longer hair, like, he looks like a boy next door. Right. Like, he doesn't look dangerous. Well, he's also sort of smiling all the time. He's mm-hmm. pleasant. He, so, in this conversation, he asks Wizard, um... He's explained to him that he's really tired of the dirt and the grime and 
all those things that are disgusting him about the city, and he gets some sort of advice that would make sense to a um, a person who didn't have Travis's complications, but at the same time, it doesn't seem to to go anywhere. He doesn't connect with that advice. Instead, he goes into this. What advice? I Wizard just said I feel that way too. Don't worry no, about not it. Not just that he feels that way too, but also he tells him about a person becoming what they are and being separate from your job as a way of de- Travis sort of distancing himself from what he's seeing in the city oh, that's okay. bothering him. You know, a man does a job, you know, and he also explains that's why he doesn't own a cab himself after all this time. Gotcha. I don't want to follow he's, the position. I don't want to be a cab driver. Right. Like, I, like I don't, or I don't want to be cab driver, right. not even a cab driver, cab driver. So I don't want that to be my identity. He's warning him not to become a part of all the sort of violence and hatred and racial animosity and things that he's seeing around him. He doesn't really take that. He goes into this period, Travis does, of self-purification of chin-ups. and Yeah, he loses a bunch of weight. Like, right. he gets down to, like, zero body fat. Right. Apparently, in the making of the film, De Niro lost 30 pounds, and he didn't have much despair to start Well, with. before he starts doing the exercises, yes. he gets uh, all of the guns. Right. He's, he goes from being like, mm-hmm. I don't need any guns, to all of the guns. Um, oh, because there's the scene with Martin Scorsese, I do believe that what his plan was, was I'm going to say the worst shit. So going forward, when I ask my actors to say terrible things, I can go, I'm on on film saying terrible, terrible things as well. So Scorsese does like a cameo as a passenger in the cab who is scoping out an apartment where his wife is with not him, (laughs) (laughs) with a black man. Which seems to be really what gets him. <laughs> I well, you know. But and then he threatens to kill his wife and shoot her, and then goes with on a, a forty-four magnum specifically. A really horrible speech about what that does to a person's anatomy. But yeah, it's not good. Right. We don't know what happens to that guy because that just scene just ends. But right. then after that, uh, Travis goes to see what is his name, Easy Andy. <laughs> Which sounds like a character from Twin Peaks, actually. In, I bet that dude is like also a real estate broker because right. they meet in like an empty apartment that looks like it could be ready for a showing. Right. And he's got all of the guns, and Travis proceeds to buy and offers to all, all of the, the drugs guns. too. And then once he buys right. the the guns, he's like, "Oh, I've also got all of the because drugs." These two things go together. Right? Yeah, you but have don't give him Madden? all of these guns. You want some oxy? <laughs> like, oxy wasn't a thing. <laughs> he was. could get him some crystal meth. Oh, crystal meth—that was it. Yeah, it, it was, was cr- no, it wasn't. It was like, well, it was weed, right. but then it was like heroin, ecstasy, I think LSD. And then crystal meth was like the new hotness right. that he could get him. But yeah, so he, he buys the guns. And I also that scene with Martin Scorsese, that was a very kind of religious devil crouching in the dark, whispering into the Yeah, ear. he was sitting in the back seat. It was yeah, very just... creepy and very weird and really good. I love that scene because it's like, ugh. Oh, and Martin Scorsese had a good goatee, man. Right. It was and like. His hair, his hair was just luxurious. It was great. So then. Travis, at this point, he, you know, he, he has one more encounter that seems to be random, and that is with Iris, who is a, a child prostitute who um, he sees being belabored by her pimp. She, she gets into his cab and right. is like, Drive, yeah, I've got to get out of here, I've got to get out of here, and then she is extracted from his cab by her pimp. Boyfriend. Boyfriend? 
pimp, hundred percent pimp, um, and he gets a twenty dollar tip, mm-hmm. which is like a huge amount of money in nineteen seventy six. Yeah, and so he sees her then occasionally out on the street. Yeah, but. And- he visits sport. He tries to set up uh, a date with her where they go to... Well, before that... Okay. So Travis has gotten himself ripped and is now sporting various holsters mm-hmm. and oh, yeah, slides. So like, he builds himself a gun slide, so if he, like, whips his arm, a gun just appears in his hand. He's got knives strapped to his boots. Like, he's... Very armed. He's going into combat now. And at one point, he's at the convenience store getting whatever he's getting, and um, the store is being robbed or gets robbed. And at that point, Travis just shoots the dude, <laughs> like shoots him in the chest or something, kills him immediately. Right. And the and the store owner is like, he's like, he starts freaking out because he's like, I don't have a permit for this, mm-hmm. and the store owner is like i've got this don't worry about it just go he tries to buy whatever it was that he had in his hand he's like just (laughs) go yeah i think travis is in shock i don't believe that he thought this would work it just was a reaction now that he's armed to the teeth and the store owner is so angry he takes it out on the corpse by beating the hell out of it because you hear that this was like the fifth robbery of the year and this dude is over yeah so he's beating with a bat he's beating this dead body so he's covered there um, but now he's a vigilante, right? right. Like we've he's entered a vigilante, and so that, I think that gives him the confidence to go forward with the next step, which is to try to a convince Iris to leave her pimp, who's played by Harvey Keitel. Right. Well, first he's got to meet her because he doesn't realize. I don't think he thinks that she should leave. Until he finds out her age, you know. I, I don't think know. That helps. I think that he, because I believe that he probably has some vision of her as a younger version of Betsy. I think that's probably right. And they're even sort of styled a little bit alike. Mm-hmm. Although Jodie Foster, with her sort of pink rimmed eyes and sort of sleepless, she looks like she's strung out. And yeah. And um, but she does resemble. She's made up to resemble a little bit this other woman. Yeah. So he sees it like as a way of rescuing her, and he does. He talks to her. She says to talk to Sport. Yes, Sport. As Sport is her pimp, Matthew, who is disgusting, the, the youngest Harvey Keitel that ever was, who is ripped. Mm-hmm. I was just like, where'd you get those guns, Harvey <laughs> Keitel? <laughs> And, um, and long, flowing, lovely hair. And he is disgusting. He yeah, speaks yeah. about her in a disgusting manner. But, of course, he's selling her. So, right. uh, And he, uh, they end up renting uh, by the time, you know, by the moment, basically, hotels, $10 for a half an hour or whatever, right. 15 minutes. They get up to the room and she starts undressing. And he's like, but don't you remember me? You were in my cab. You, mm. were, you said you wanted to get away. And she's like, I must have been stoned. He's like, no, 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 you really, you like, you were really scared and this, that, and the other. And then she's like, no, I don't have anywhere to go. So I must have been stoned. They protect me right. and give me somewhere to be. So if you want, let's, she kept saying, let's make it. I'm like, ugh, what a weird, ugh. And yeah, then, uh, she, oh, and then we find out she's 12 and a half. She's there are and two half. scenes in the history of movies that gave me the same uncomfortable, fe- or that had the same uncomfortable feeling. This one and the beginning of Hard Candy. Oh, where yeah. Ellen Page is a, what, 13-year-old? Something like that. Although to... I think that she's older than that. Right. She just 
always looks young. But in that scene, she's a, like a preteen girl trying to, as it, well, I won't spoil that film for you, but trying to seduce a pushing middle-aged man. And right, it's just so just gross that. and weird. And it's like, upsetting. Ugh. Yeah, so she's like, let's do this so that, because I'm going to get in trouble. Right. Like, if we don't do this and I don't get the money, mm-hmm. I'm going to get in trouble. You're going to walk away and right. I'm going to get in trouble. So, but he doesn't do that. He seems to be disgusted by it. I don't know if physical contact is even his thing, though. I, it's, it's hard unclear, to tell. It's unclear, especially when you go to a porn theater. Right. To watch the movie. To watch the movie. <laughs> right. I don't know that your brain then connects this with physical, in actual physical, physical intimacy. But, yeah, but when you look at the film, he doesn't, at any point, he doesn't get patted on the back. He doesn't touch other people. You know, the one time that he's touched is by Albert Brooks, who's trying to show him out the door, and he immediately gets into a stance like he's going to drop him. Right. And so I think that any kind of physicality beyond violence is not something necessarily that he knows how to deal with. Right. And given how young he must have been when he went into the Marine Corps, that might be the case. Right. But, um, but yeah, you know, the one thing that uh, Iris seems to be willing to do is to go away to a commune. And she agrees later to have breakfast with him. Yeah, she has breakfast with him. And uh, during which she's really spiking that coffee with so much sugar, you know, she needs to maintain yeah. some kind of high. Um, and I want to just she, stay awake. I'm yeah. sure that she's being worked at hours that yeah. a 12-year-old should be asleep, frankly. But she, uh, so he, it, it's like he feels like he's beginning to appeal and get across to her. He's like, you should be in school. And mm. it, nothing that he's saying is like untoward. It's not right. sexual in any way. But he's like, you're a kid. You should be in school with your parents. And she's like, they hate me. And that's why I'm here. And you don't get it. That scene, I guess, that scene is really good. Like, mm-hmm. she's very good in it. Yeah. Because she, we were talking about it when, when we were watching it. Jodie Foster, I think, has always sounded like an adult. Like, I'm pretty sure her first words had something to do with taxes. Give like, me a cigarette. No. She's, I don't think it was, I don't think she's ever been a she's, smoker. She's but just been that kind of She hard-ish. is very poised right. and together, but then her laugh is that of a, just a child. Right. And so when she laughs in the scene, it's just like heartbreaking because you're just like, oh, she's a baby. Right. <laughs> she's, save her. Um, and then he goes home. He, writes a letter right. to Iris, uh, leaving her the money that he... And he makes good money. That's the other thing. is He's pulling in $300, $350 a week, which well, is a lot of money. he's willing to go anywhere. There are cab drivers who aren't willing to go to Harlem. There are That's cab drivers right. who aren't willing to... And so he's, you know, he hates everybody. He has no distinctions yeah, he, about right. that. So exactly. It's not like he hates blacks anymore than he hates the Cubans or the Chinese or the Puerto Ricans. He just hates everybody. Yeah. So he'll go into any neighborhood and he'll just raking in the cash and he has nothing to spend it on. He tells yeah. her that at one point. And there was a, there's, this is the second time that he's gone to a rally for Charles Palantine. Now this dude is running for the presidency, mm-hmm. but apparently only running in New York City because he is always in New York no, City. Well, no, there, there's a discussion because at one point Palantine is in his cab. That's right. And they're discussing going to California. That's true. He seems to only have the one speech. He must be like the senator of New York, right. which is why he's pushing so right. hard there. But yeah, he does He isn't, He does speak with Travis, and Travis is talking about how you've got to clean up the filth of New York, and they're like, okay. <laughs> That's great. Get out the boat. Um, And let's get the fuck out of this car. And then he goes to another uh, rally where he, like, 
sidles up to a giant Secret Service officer. <laughs> that dude seemed to be about six seven, um, and like stands and mimics his pose next to him, and then you know asks him about how you have to how you get to be in the Secret Service, and the Secret Service thinks he's slick and he's like. Why don't you give me your name and address, and we'll send you all the information. And but Travis is slicker and gives him a bullshit address with a six-digit zip code. Yeah, well, he's not slick enough to actually know <laughs> nope. that, you know, to think this out. But, but he gives a false name and address in uh, Jersey. Um, but then he goes to another rally after he's written this letter to Iris, which is basically, "I'm dead now, but you should go home." And he's going to assassinate Palantine. But he has shaved his head into a mohawk. And he has previously alerted the Secret Service to the fact that he is a crazy person. And so they see him and they chase him off. And he does not get anywhere near his target. This is the only other time. Well, not the only other time. This is another scene where we see Betsy, too. Yeah, she's there. She's, she's like there. sitting on the stage. On, on the actual stage. On so the she, dais, yeah. Which is what makes you, made, gave me the impression she was a real true believer. She's somebody who's there for the cause. And I don't know if she would put up with other nonsense from, you know, her coworkers or whatever else. She might be very dedicated towards this politically. Right. Um, but And I, I like that we never find out if he's a Democrat or a Republican. Right. Because she asks him, what do you think, or what do you think of his stat, stance on welfare? And, mm-hmm. and he's like, well, I don't, I don't know what it's what it is, but I'm sure it's a very good stance. And then, um, you know, when they're talking in the car, he's like, well, what would you like to see? What change would you like to see? And he says, I want to, you should clean up the filth in the streets of New York, which the president isn't really, uh, uh, that's not his job. I'm not sure exactly. (laughs) So, uh, but, so we never find out what this dude's stance on anything is. Oh, except that we are, America. <laughs> we are America. That's you sent you us say. buttons that have the we underlined, and that means we are America, but we want to say we are America with the R underlined. So that's what I know about his whole deal. I, I just find it really funny that, you know, he really doesn't say anything. You know? so, yeah, no, he doesn't. Very so he's realistic. A yeah, oh, very good. So having failed in his plan to, to kill the um, the would candidate. Be president, candidate, yes. He winds up going for his secondary plan, which is to rescue Iris. And then ensues he the probably one of the more violent and realistic gunfights. Yeah. It's in a film. Uh, this is not a Western. I think there was a conscious jump away from the Western shootouts where somebody falls decorously behind a table. Right. No. This is really graphic. So yeah, he goes up to sports stands in a doorway down the street from the hotel where all of his uh people are oh there was a very interesting scene prior to this with iris and sport with iris oh and yes Matthew, yes i'm sorry that where one of the few scenes of the film that don't involve travis no it's there's only two oh. um and it's the one with uh albert brooks and sybil shepherd at mm-hmm. the beginning and the one here with these two where uh matthew or sport mm-hmm. is um basically re-upping his pimping qualifications. I love you, baby. I'd love to spend more time with you. I like that you don't like what you're doing because it means that you want to be with me instead and all that bullshit. And the fact that he's saying this to a child. to a child. Oh, God. And then they dance. 
and he says like you're so beautiful and feeling you so close to me makes me feel like the whole thing is like skin now, mind you, what's what mm, it, there's a the earlier scene he's describing all these really revolting things that De Niro can do to her because she's 12 and a half on years her old. and in her and ugh. and then the scene with the actual 12 and a half year old he's being ridiculously romantic he's appealing. of course he is so, because that's how you get the 12 year old to stay and do what right. you want her to do but i mean that was unfortunately it's also how you get the 28 year old to mm-hmm. stay and do what you want her to do well, it's like you know it's um Abusive behavior 101, what, right. what he's doing. And, but, and that scene was necessary, I think, for what happens afterwards, because you really, mm-hmm. you, you don't want, I get, the director does not want you in any way, shape, or form on the sports side. No. Um, and what winds up happening is so brutal, not just to sport, but to the owner of the hotel that, that runs the hotel. Where well, the I think it's his manager. I think right. that they all are sort of in together. Yeah, right, so, they're in together, yeah. So, um Travis goes up to Sport standing in the street, mm-hmm. and he doesn't recognize him. Because the mohawk. Because the mohawk. Uh, yeah, that did it. It's like Clark Kent's glasses. Travis, I think, he, does he ask about Iris? I think he asks about Iris, and he says something flip and right. gross about her. And then, like, with no, like, there was no warning. That was the thing about the violence in this movie. It was like, all at once and all mm-hmm. of a sudden... Uh, like when he shot the guy in the convenience store, I was like, right. what the fuck? <laughs> what the hell just happened? He shoots him in the gut and walks away. Just like, right. okay. And then he goes into the hotel and he fires at the dude that collects the money for the room. Mm-hmm. The manager, a, a bouncer. He kill, He shoots at a bouncer, mm-hmm. He but he shoots that dude, the manager, in right. the hand and like blows off half of his fingers. Right. Which is a weird callback to a joke that Sybil Shepherd and Albert Brooks were doing right. about how would you strike a match if you had only your thumb and your baby f- and your pinky finger right, on exactly. one hand, just, a, and then all of a sudden this really, dude has like no yeah. fingers on his hand. So be prepared to see that because that the first time I saw it really surprised me because again coming from there are coming from a different way of seeing yeah. this kind of violence on television all the time. No, this is what a person looks like when they get shot. Yeah. And they're screaming and there's blood and there's, yeah. Yeah. And so, and then he's fighting his way up to the room that he had been in with Mm -hmm. Iris previously. And then Sport comes in behind him because he shot him in the gut. He didn't Mm -hmm. kill him. So he's firing and Travis gets shot in the neck. And I was like, what? I did not see that coming. But he keeps going like the Terminator. Well, all I don't know if it was like are, a super small caliber bullet or what. They're also really adrenalized. Yeah, that's true. Because the doorman keeps falling up the stairs threatening to kill him, even though he's obviously bleeding to death. Right. You know. There um, are, yeah, just people are shot in very haphazard ways right. and continue to move forward. Um, and he breaks down the doorway, door. Mm-hmm. And he ends up killing the man that's in the room with Iris. Mm-hmm. And maybe another man, like and another... The, the doorman comes over, tries to... He, he, I think he stabs him. I, I, they're I, stabbing, they're shooting. There's a lot. It's he, a lot. he finally kills Harvey Keitel's character. And then yeah, and Harvey Keitel's character comes in at the very end, mm-hmm. and Iris is screaming, don't kill him, don't kill him. Mm-hmm. Of course, Travis kills him. And then collapses. And Using then, the slide gun, right? The, yeah, yes. He, he yes. utilizes nearly every weapon in his arsenal it's at this bananas. point. It's bananas. And then the cops come. The three police officers come and do not shoot 
Travis. Well, he, at this point, he's he's at the very end is trying to commit suicide. Yeah, he, he tries to he tries to shoot himself. He's out of bullets, bullets right. and he's out of bullets and apparently all of his firearms. But he's also bleeding out, so he lacks the ability to do more than just sit there. Right. So he sits there and he is covered in blood, and he raises his fingers in a gun right. um, shape, an L shape, up to his temple, and then it's like. Psh, she does not make him look crazy at all. <laughs> and then we see newspaper clippings and we hear like news or radio mm-hmm. news about uh, the hero cabbie right. who is healing nicely and will be released from the hospital. And that that point I looked at you and I said, oh, this movie is about white privilege. <laughs> um and we get a voiceover mm-hmm. of Iris's dad writing a thank you letter. Right. She's here. She's doing well in school. We couldn't. We came up to visit you, but you were still in a coma. We couldn't. We we can't come visit again because we don't have the means. But we would love to. You know, you're our hero. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you for everything. And all of these. You know, hero, cabbie, hero, cabbie, hero, cabbie, uh, clippings. And then Travis goes back to work. And he winds up supposedly, and this is something, I believe at this point he's a completely unreliable narrator. Right. So, and then, yeah, he picks up Betsy, or Betsy gets in his cab from wherever, and she says, I saw everything about you on the news, and... And all that. She doesn't like dote on him, mm-hmm. but she is a little bit gushy. She's appreciative of him, now. and he doesn't say he doesn't say anything to her. Yeah. Um, and then when they get to wherever she needed to go, she gets out, and he still hasn't said anything. And then she's like, sort of crestfallen, and she's mm-hmm. like, "How much is it?" And he says something like, "Have a good day" or something like that, and, and then, then he, just drives away. Right. Um, and then. He gets like agitated because he sees like something in the rearview mirror, and we then don't see. we don't see it. Um, then is... it just goes into the credits with a lot of overlapping. The, I I did not like the end credits; they were unsettling to me. Just overlapping imagery of the uh, glass, like reflections right. of signage and things like that. So everything was off center. And like backwards and off kilter and uh, like Which I said, I think overlapping. World. I think that actually was a deliberate attempt to show you. I think that's how right. Disoriented and he was. I, I think that that's absolutely right, and it was unsettling right. to me. I was like, I don't like these. I don't want to watch this anymore. Uh, and that's that's a wrap, yo. So how did you feel about it? You know, okay. <laughs> I mean, it's like dun, dun, dun. I didn't. I loved this movie. It was wonderful. No, I have, no okay. So De Niro is very good. The direction is really, really good and really interesting. And Mm -hmm. you said something um, that I think we should talk about, which is the lighting changes significantly on this on the last scene with the violence. Mm -hmm. And you said you notice it got darker. The only way they could keep the R rating was if they made it less saturated, saturated the color because it was too bloody. Right. And I wonder if they turned up the saturation again on that last scene where he's 
his hand is covered in blood, and he puts it to his head, and that seems to have the proper color, the right color back to it. I think my entire problem with the film can be summed up by the Martin Scorsese (laughs) quote to Roger Ebert, who loves this movie or loved this movie rather. Oh, I'll miss you. I do miss you. Um, let me find it here. I'm looking at the the uh, trivia in IMDb. I do like that the you talking to me thing is ad libbed. Right. I think all. I, it's funny how oh, like in uh, those famous lines, uh, how many of them were ad libbed. I think that a number of the conversations between the characters were ad libbed as well. That this was a. That might be right. right, but I guess in the thing the the script just says Travis looks in the mirror, <laughs> and I don't know if they were just like bored. That's boring. In an interview with Roger Ebert upon the film's release, Martin Scorsese called it quote my feminist film because it takes macho to its logical conclusion. The better man is the man who can kill you. This shows that kind of thinking shows the kinds of problems some men have bouncing back and forth between their perception of women as goddesses and whores. Okay, that's... that Everything after this is my feminist film, mm-hmm. I'm on board with. Yes, it looks at toxic masculinity, which is a phrase that he did not know in 1976. Yeah. That's fine. And the goddess whore idealization mm-hmm. um, that he has with women... Right, they're all perfectly pure or ruined. Those are your options, I guess. Um, even though he doesn't have a problem with the sex act, like the sex act does not ruin you, right? right? Because otherwise, Iris would be ruined. She's not new, and he heard all of the things that people paid to do to her. Mm. Uh, that's not what feminism is, though, dude. Like, feminism is not how men interact with women like that's not well this is just again uh, make concessions for the limited understanding that he probably had of this yeah. then i sure it's just, he would not make the same statement now yeah he's and a brilliant man so um, that i i liked the movie but uh-huh. yeah the women like it's rough as a woman to watch this movie no it's a product of its time though and i think that's that fair in terms of the fact i think the women are actually given and this, again, is not, you know, me arguing on the film's behalf. Right. But that it was a part of a, a whole culture. Right. And that in no way are the women made to be real victims in this. Mm. Even Jodie Foster, to a certain extent, is participating in what she's doing. Right. Well, um, to any, as the extent that a 12-year-old can be said to be doing that. This is a decision that she's made. That's fair. And Betsy is not at any point... Is not a, a shrinking violet. No, and I don't, and I'm not saying mm-hmm. that they should have been treated differently. Right. I think that they are treated appropriately for the film and for what the film is doing right. about this man and his problems, including his problems with women. I'm saying, as a woman, this film is hard to watch. Yes, I understand. And so that's why I don't know that I want to say I liked the movie because mm-hmm. it was. It was like I said. It was beautiful to watch. The cinematography was beautiful. I liked the music a whole bunch. The performances were really good. I can check it off a list. I think there are two more 
two stronger female characters than you got in the either of the two Godfather movies. That's fair. By having yes. only two female characters, yes, you did. You had them, and they were thought out. Yeah. They weren't one note. No. They uh, they had their own complications. And it was interesting to see that that ending with Jodie Foster, whose parents seemed to really love her. Mm-hmm. Like, so I don't know why they would send a letter. Right stating that they wanted their daughter back and they were so grateful to have her back if they, if she was a drain on them, right. which is what my thoughts were after she was talking about how her parents hated her and how, that's why she's she left. I mean, yes, the two women that we see are strong, kind of awesome characters. Well-written characters, rounded characters. Bad shit is happening to them yeah. oh, all of the time. And that is hard to like. I know. It's and just a this lot film is about to watch. The, a weight of bad shit on people. Yeah, you know, and that's. Um, I think it's extremely interesting that we know literally nothing about this character. Mm-hmm. He's twenty six. He was in the Marines, probably drafted in, into Vietnam. Mm-hmm. We don't know any. Oh, what are, he was writing to his parents. He writes a. Like he's a, writing a fictional life for himself so that they'll know that he's okay. Right. But it doesn't give you many clues as to exactly what it... We, all that we know is that at some point he just cut and took off and yeah. they have no idea where he is. They don't... Oh, that's right. I can't tell you where I'm living, but right. I have a, a girlfriend named Betsy. Right. He does say that. And he's that he's working and he's got a good job and he's making good money. But he's not saying... It's a... It, He's telling them as much truth as he told the Secret Service agent when right. asked about his identity. But we don't know. And this person either had zero home training, mm-hmm. right, as to not understand what a feature film versus a porn film and wh- what's appropriate where, or was unable to absorb that tr- information Typically, so is he neuro, uh, you know, neuroatypical? Is he on a on, on the spectrum somewhere? Is he suffering from post traumatic stress. It, that's the other thing. Was he fine up until he went into the military, and right. then after the military, no. Uh, the insomnia. I mean, twenty six. He could be becoming schizophrenic. That's a right. uh, prime age. Because for that. yeah, I believe that to me. But they, we never get the a diagnosis. Betsy, I'm very. Suspicious whether or not Betsy was ever even in the car. Yeah, you I, believe that that I, was... At this point, it could have been a complete break on his part, and we don't know exactly what it is or how much of this is is, is now happening. We know that he did go on this massacre right? because there's external evidence of that, yes. but whatever else has happened, I don't but know. But because everybody he killed mm-hmm. was a criminal, right? right? We've got the pimp. Mm-hmm. We've got the John of a 12-year-old prostitute. Right. We've got... The managers, the bouncers, right. you know, the people that are holding, presumably holding this woman or this girl. Right. So everybody, because everyone he killed was, I mean, he's the he's pre Dexter. Dexter, I only kill bad people. Fortunately, he did only kill bad people because the good people stopped him from killing the candidate. No, in. When we go back to that scene about the violence, I'm again curious about your opinion when you're expressing it to people nowadays, how it won't be as violent to them or it won't be as... I don't think you would be... I, I was shocked by the suddenness of uh-huh. the violence 
there was no ramping up to it. It just happened. There mm-hmm. were all of a sudden people are being shot immediately right now. But the scope of the violence, I mean, if you watch HBO, mm. it's not more violent than anything that you've seen. You particularly see a difference between the practical effects being used versus the when significant CGI amounts of blood CGI. Fly, you know, this is Dick Smith again, <laughs> who's responsible for killing most of the Corleone family at this point and possessing Linda Blair. There's, it's graphic because it's, you're actually watching physical things being shot and bleeding. And, but I think w- those scenes affected me more because there are very realistic pictures of violence. If you've ever seen a street fight or you've seen people having a shootout in the street, which unfortunately I've seen both of, it is just suddenly gunshots are ringing out, everyone's ducking, you don't know what's going on. And there's just, it, you're, you can, there was a similar scene, I think, in uh, Fargo where um, the character's wife has been kidnapped and she's watching a man walking up to the door of her house mm-hmm. and breaking in. And the entire time she doesn't think she's in danger because it's almost like a stage play. Okay. And in a lot of ways, real violence is like that. Suddenly you're just sort of, oh, wait, he just, he has a razor on him. Right, yes, because was, you're seeing something in real life that you're used to watching on a screen. Right. So it takes strange. your brain a minute to go, mm-hmm. oh, no, this is like really happening. Right. There's that, <laughs> and that, this film has that same sort of effect where, oh, God, and then it's going by so quick and you're not quite sure what's going on and, and again, in not like a unlike a, a movie western, people are being shot and they're adrenalized, so they're dragging their bodies around, they're bleeding everywhere, and it really is it, it was really very realistic, which is what I, I impresses me about it. I, I, I see that, but mm-hmm. and and I'm also I mean I might just be jaded. Mm-hmm. I might just be a jaded viewer or violence. Or desensitized to it because yeah. there's been so much violence since then. There's a ton of trivia, but I don't know that any of it you know, a lot of it is, here are all the people that were going to play the parts. I do like the idea of Melanie Griffith almost playing, playing Iris. Iris. And I do, I'm really interested because I never would see anybody different uh, playing Travis. But when you mentioned of all the people, that you know, Warren Beatty and everyone else that you mentioned. Yeah, let Dustin me get Hoffman. the list. Other actors considered for the role, specifically... Uh, Martin Scorsese offered it directly to Dustin Hoffman. Mm-hmm. Dustin Hoffman thought Scorsese was a crazy man and turned it down and apparently is regretful. But the other people considered were Jeff Bridges, Jack Nicholson, Warren Beatty, Burt Reynolds, Ryan O'Neill, Peter Fonda, Al Pacino, John Voight, Robert Blake, David Carradine. Robert Blake would have been a thing. <laughs> Richard Dreyfuss, Christopher Walken, James Kahn, Roy Scheider, Paul Newman, Marlon Brando, Martin Sheen, Elliot Gould, Alan Alda, and George Hamilton. So, like, every actor that was acting I can't in see 1975. Alan Alda and George Hamilton, either of them doing this, but the ones that you mentioned that are intriguing, watching Christopher Walken or David Carradine, who both had a great intimate connection with Crazy, yeah. or Carradine did, and Walken does. It would be interesting watching them do the point where a person just cracks. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, so that respect's like, huh, that would be an interesting alternate casting for that. But, um, no, De Niro, this is one of his parts, one of the ones that he just absolutely plants his flag on. Yeah. So here's a fun Steven Spielberg fact. Mm. You'll like this. Uh, he visited the recording sessions to tell Bernard Herman how much he admired his work. Now, mm-hmm. Bernard Herman 
passed away hours after completing right. the composer, the the composition on this film, and um, the film is dedicated to him. So he stopped by to say how much he admired his work, and uh, Herman responded, "Oh yeah." Then why do you always use John Williams on your films? <laughs> oh, snap! That's a good question. <laughs> Bitch, walk away from me. You know how much I need your admiration? If it don't have dollars attached, walk the fuck out. Brad, I love that shit. That's awesome. Brad Herman was great at menace. The, you, you're watching Psycho, you're watching Rear Window. He's really good at it's getting It's crazy to me that he did that. the Hitchcock scores which are string-heavy, mm-hmm. I would say. And this movie opted to use no strings at all, which is an odd choice, for, mm-hmm. especially for a sp- suspense film. Mm-hmm. Like, strings are what are what now we're programmed to go, oh, some shit's going to go right. down. Dun-dun, right. dun-dun. That was, um, <laughs> when, what's his name? James Bernard was doing the Hammer movies. He's like, he almost used nothing but strings. And he would do these screeching violins because he said that just gets on people's it nerves. Does. And it freaks them it out. does. It does. It's an unsettling. Herman sound. knew this because he did this for Psycho. Right. Right. The screeching strings. Um, but Bernard Herman, yeah. In this one, what he did, there was a lot of like this sort of. Uh, I mean, there was the jazz composition that you hear in the foreground all the time, which is reminding you of this sort of film noir and you know, night in the city, and then this sort of like swelling drum thing that he's doing. Um, in the background that kind of makes you feel like something's hidden and emerging and hidden and emerging. It's mm-hmm. very strange, but it really sets the mood for the film. And it's been how many days since you know we saw it? Three, and four, that theme two. is still just running through my head constantly. <laughs> mm-hmm. My God, yeah, it sticks with you. He really that that was a great note to end a career and a life on, really, in work. Yeah. So I can. Uh, so we watched you, Taxi Driver. I can recommend it. I, I, if you haven't seen it, mm-hmm. it's definitely, it's, I mean, it's on the lists right. of the greatest American films, the thousand films you be. should see before you die. And it's certainly, mm-hmm. but you, as, if you're, um, a woman or someone who identifies as maybe non, non male, mm-hmm. do it on a day where you haven't had a lot of microaggressions, maybe have a drink. Before it's, and after, during. <laughs> it's a, it's a lot of, it, like, it's a lot of assault on femalehood. And also, you know, there are, like I said, and we said, there mm. are slurs against every this is manner a, of person. This is a so, misanthrope. Yes. A very intense sociopath, psychopath, I would imagine. Yeah, I think once you become violent... Right. It, and, and, a, and a misanthrope, and this is a person who has no. But he, way of... he's, and it's interesting because he longs for connection, mm-hmm. but is so off put by people that it's not going to happen. There's, yeah, he's incapable of it, and that's what makes him a tragic figure. But at the same time, not so tragic that you can go. I wish I could reach out to him and be his friend. Yeah, and I, I am personally appalled by the fact that he was seen as a hero and then released. But you know. Uh, there, uh, I I asked you if this was before or after the Bernard Getz. Yes, yeah. the 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 man who vigilanteed all over the subway mm-hmm. in New York, um, and you said this was before, and which was a little surprising to me. There's also, um, you know, the film Death Wish that Charles Bronson did. 
Yes, and the, Bruce Willis just redid. Sorry, the first everyone. Film was really violent and horrific and intense about a man who becomes a vigilante, and apparently horrified Charles Bronson that they kept calling him back to do sequels because this character was a hero and he was trying to play him as a psychopath. Like, no, yeah, this guy needs help, and right. and you know this that Travis Bickle was in the hospital in a coma mm-hmm. when he woke up. They didn't get him, right. Help, and they didn't bring a bump on charges. Even if you're not going to charge him with the violent murders of the several people that he killed, you might want to get him on. I don't know possession of a handgun and this, without being permitted. This goes to the. And, but he didn't. He didn't lose his job. Right. He didn't like. He didn't lose anything. And to anybody who thinks that in itself is unrealistic. Oh, I don't think it's unrealistic, which is why it's so upsetting to me. Anybody listening, you might find it that way. I recently posted on Facebook something that was sent to me by a person from a martial arts group about a young man who snuck a katana onto, what was it, a commuter train? And he was a young white kid. There were two black men fighting with each other, getting a shoving match. He pulls out the katana and threatens to kill them with it. I know that kid. And that kid was up, raised in Clear Lake. Sorry, everyone. And, and also, up, he is dead because he drowned. Because you know what you can't do? Right. Kill a water with katana. Well, see, what he did is he got news coverage. He got news coverage. And there was a banner at the bottom of the screen, the Age of uh, Honor has returned. And he's pretending, this young white kid who looks like Crispin Glover and is, yes. is pretending to be a samurai. And he's talking about, well, if the guys came at me, I would use this cut and that cut. And he's a self-taught martial artist, which is the most dangerous kind. Yeah, and a katana, like a real katana, mm-hmm. is a killing weapon. Right. It's not a wounding weapon. No, there's nothing you can do. It's it is designed right. to straight up murder your ass. And so, yeah, the fact that it's cool that these mm-hmm. people... Yeah, no. It's, and the fact mm. that he got interviewed on the news and they're honoring him is like, look what he did. He broke up this fight with a deadly weapon. I mean, that's no less deadly at that range than having a machine gun, for God's sakes. Mm-mm. And it's horrifying. It's horrifying the, the implication. Yeah, know. because you're basically going to end up disemboweling right. somebody disemboweling or something. Disemboweling or decapitating somebody. That's what the tool is made for. <sighs> so it was, when I saw that. Yeah, so it was, film, I yeah. was very surprised that the, um, that the resolution of the film was no resolution. Right. That he lost nothing. And he basically, I mean, it was the beginning of the movie again. Mm-hmm. He's just driving his cab. And the final note of the film, that weird kind of, I saw something in the rearview mirror, was Scorsese's indication to you that this is not purged from his system. This no. is just, he's a hero now, but he's not going to be next time. Next time it might be a, com- a presidential candidate, it might be a president, it might be somebody. And the way that we... Or just you know, somebody caught in the crossfire. Right. That's the other thing. He opened fire in a in a place where basically everyone, he's mm. lucky Iris didn't get shot. Yeah. He's very lucky Iris didn't get shot. I don't, you know, she's sitting in a corner cowering and terrified like you should be when there's a gunfight going on and you're right. 12 and a half years old. But, but she, I mean, a ricochet could have taken yeah. her, I mean. Yeah. So, but uh, that having been said, going back to it, yeah, I, I can recommend the film, but you really have to be aware going into it. It's not necessarily a pleasant experience yeah, at all. Yeah, no, it's, it. Uh, yeah, so watch it mm-hmm. when you're in a good mood. With reservations that, yes, be prepared if. Really strong offensive language bothers you. If intends violence, this is not the movie for you. But if you're looking at it the same way that you'd look at maybe some of um, uh, 
Oh, I don't know. It's almost like you're reading Edgar Allan Poe or something, one of these characters who doesn't know how crazy they are. Yeah. Um, that's kind of what this is. Yeah, a very Annabelle Lee very situation. American Gothic kind of thing going yeah. on. It's very disturbing. But anyhow. All right. So, do you, I think we might have the same recommendation, yes, which means I'm going to bite your style again. You go first. Oh. So, we went to the movies this weekend. Um between going to other things and other doing other stuff. And we saw what I mistakenly thought was John Krasinski's directorial debut. It is not, uh, but it is his latest endeavor, uh, A Quiet Place, with uh, said Mr. Krasinski and his wife, Emily Blunt. I don't even really want to talk about it, though, because the trailer's leave out some important information, and I was very grateful that they did. But if you like horror movies, go see this movie. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. Just, it's very good. But anything that I say is going to... Well, I'll tell you, here's what the the trailer... Well, if you haven't seen it, watch the trailer, because the trailer is actually very well done, too, which is a weird thing to say about trailers these days. There are creatures, we don't know why, but if they hear you, they hunt you. And so this family are just trying to live a very quiet existence and not draw attention to themselves or else violence and death. It is very tense. I was very tense the whole time. I think it benefits from a theatrical experience, partly because... He does different sound design with different characters, specifically because one of the children is deaf. So that adds, it allows some realism when they're using sign language to communicate, because this family would use sign language to communicate. And But the sound design for each of the characters and what they're hearing and what they're experiencing changes. And I think that a surround sound system is very is beneficial to the mm. viewing experience. But beyond that, go. It's only 90 minutes. I was going to be bummed about the fact that it was only 90 minutes, but I was grateful for the fact that it was 90 minutes because I was tense. <laughs> I mentioned this to you at the time, that it was. It reminded me in some ways of Henri Georges Clouseau's film, The Wages of Fear, where four men are driving trucks full of nitroglycerin up a bumpy road to put out a fire. And so during that entire passage in that film, you're just sitting there as these men are sweating. You're just like, this car, right? you're <laughs> holding your breath because right. you think you're going to set off some shit. Mm-mm. Yeah, it, it's, it, it reminded me of that because it has the same experience of being in a perpetual state of suspense. Like yeah. any misstep, and mm-hmm. you learn that early on in the film, any misstep is really, really dangerous. Right. You can't, you know. Yeah, it's not like, oh, oops. Mm-hmm. A little thing could happen. It's like no, uh, everything devastating. has dire, dire consequences. Yeah. And it, the film, every part of the film was really well thought out for the reason why they all know sign language. The reason, mm-hmm. uh, or the the world that gets created in the um, the after effects of, of this was an invasion. Of, we're never told. We're never tell, told. You pick up on its uh i think the opening title card is day 89 mm-hmm. so we're to understand it's 89 days since an event mm-hmm. and then you could pick up at another day later 
down the line. Um, at time has passed. People make intelligent decisions. They make decisions that are consistent with their characters. Yes, I think so. Um, there's... Re- but I, I don't want... usually cry in a horror movie. I cried. I cried I think in this, this movie. Is, this is a, a superior horror movie, but again, and I know that horror is a weird label for people, but it's evidence of the kind of thing that a horror movie can be, which is it's telling you something, and it's also putting you there with this family. You mm-hmm. actually care what happens to them. I thought so. I, there have been criti- I mean, it's it's doing very well critically. I've mm-hmm. seen some criticisms that people didn't feel anything for this family, and mm-hmm. I don't know who those people are. I think they're soulless bastards. <laughs> I mean, that's not just soulless. Yeah. I don't know about their parental states. Uh, I really, really enjoyed the movie, um, and I'm hoping to go see it again with our other roommate who was unable to come the first yeah. time, um, because a, I think been she'll like it, too. There's a trend of really good, we've hit some high notes with this, things like It Follows or The Witch, or one films that are horror films that are still aimed at keeping your intelligence engaged and keeping, you know... Yeah, because some horror movies, I go in and I'm like, oh, right. it's time to turn off my sense of disbelief. Right. Um... And that's fine. I can do that and go into a movie and just be like, it, just going to let it happen. Right. Like, I don't need to think hard and critically about Pacific Rim Uprising. Right. But it was to their credit, they actually made a film that was entertaining on different levels for that, sure. too. Yes. So it wasn't just like, oh, no, you, you can park your you brain. You can, but, but you don't have to. to. But in this case, I felt like there was, yeah, you could do either way. Mm-hmm. Either way for this one, too. I think you could think about it cerebrally or you could just be like you but, could treat it like a popcorn horror movie and be caught up in the story right. and be but either way you'll be caught up yeah I, that's the I effect would think that it has so. on people watching it in the theater um <laughs> i also think that watching it in a theater with other people right. and getting their palpable the guy behind us who at some point seemed to be praying for the character he was very funny he was great. very funny um, that's the kind of thing that I, I really enjoy about the theater experience is yeah. having all those people there who are Alternately freaking out, and you know, some of my best theater experiences have been when people run out of the film because they're, <sighs> they're, you know, so funny. It's just too much for them. But yes, I highly recommend it. It's a quiet place. It's a quiet film too. It is until it, it until isn't. It isn't right? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I think that brings us to the end. Thank you for listening. Sorry for the lateness of last week's episode. I, I vow to do better. Uh, if you missed my recent appearance on Back to the Future Rama, I would love for you to check it out. Um, I sat in with Mike and Ben, and we talked about 300 Big Boys. It's tax season, so it was fitting. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. So check that out, Back to the Futurama podcast at all of your podcast getting locations i guess it's apple podcast not itunes anymore um we are available at apple podcasts also i just got word that we are on stitcher and if you've got a smart speaker we're on the TuneIn app so if that's how you get your podcasts you can i guess ask alexa to play the latecomers and you'll hear our lovely voices I don't know if that's how any of this works. Um, I'm not sure my voice is lovely, but I'll do my best. (laughs) And if you have questions, concerns, comments, uh, you can email us at latecomerspod at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at the latecomers, or at latecomerspod. 
Lemuel's book can be purchased on Amazon at Sealing Night. Uh, that's S-E-E-L-I-N-G-N-I-G-H-T. Two words on Amazon. It's a book of short stories about a man named Cabal and some ghosts. Get it. Uh, <laughs> and I can be reached to see what all I am doing at AmityArmstrong.com. We've got a Facebook group and page so find us like us subscribe please uh leave us a review if you want you know you want to you love to do those you reviews really do. you really want you love to. it so much all right thank you so much for listening oh next week i'm taking the reins and we are oh. watching clueless because there's been too much murder and That's profanity right. and we're gonna get some vibrant ass colors up in here and your brain is gonna hurt at the end of it it's, i'm very I, excited I, about it i think my eyes are gonna hurt first but yeah okay. so clueless next week hopefully it's streaming somewhere i have not done that research um and we thank you so much for listening and remember better late than never on you Oh, <laughs> <laughs>